you would uh, take your copy of God's Word, take your copy of God's Word, whether it is between some leather or in a digital form on your phone or your tablet, and turn to the letter of James, the little letter of James towards the back of your Bible. And it's a book we've been studying for some time now, and we'll continue our study in it. And I just want to again remind you that James is written to those who are already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Uh, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, well, first of all, I'd encourage you to contemplate uh, John 3.16 and encourage you to read the Gospel of John. Uh, for God so loves you that he gave his only begotten Son that if you believe it in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, uh, for most of us, James is a sobering book. I hope it is sobering for you and been sobering for you because James is concerned about ethical living. In other words, how does a Christian live out their faith? And James is not a doctrinal book, but it is an ethical book. It's an ethical teaching on how to live. And we've been spending some time here, and personally, it has been a good exercise for me and a good reminder for me and yet at the same time, it has been one of the hardest books I've had to preach through. And uh, I don't know why that is. It's because uh, he digs around in my own life, uh, James does, and I hope he's doing the same for you, because that is how we grow when we are exposed to the Word of God. But as you take uh, James, we're in chapter 4 by this time. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then we will read the passage for today, which is chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Just two verses. But I found that that is plenty for me for today. And so let me begin. If you follow along as I read chapter 4 of James, verses 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you, do not, you are not a doer of the law, but they judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. Again, Heavenly Father, teach us today in your power and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you've been with us in the study of James, you know, beginning clear back in chapter 3, he's been concerned with our speech, with our verbal uh, speech and talking. And he talks about the tongue is a fire in chapter 3, and the only way to overcome that is to allow God to work his wisdom in our lives. And then he talks about things to avoid. And, and uh, two weeks ago now, we looked at uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And in that paragraph, there are 10 imperative verbs, which have the force of a command. And we looked at those road markers, the road signs, six of them that we determined there, based upon those 10 commands. And then we come to the 11th command in chapter uh, 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another is the imperative command. And again, it has to do with our speech. Well, that led me this week to uh, do a little research on Tasmanian devils. And uh, you may wonder why. And it's a good thing if you're wondering why. Do I push the middle button, Wes? Uh, whatever. Uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> 
There we go. And I had forgotten what a Tasmanian devil looks like. He's a cute little devil, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, they're in the island of Tasmania, down by Australia. But I was reading about Tasmanian devils, and uh, in, the, in 2006, Australian scientists discovered the cause of a mysterious disease that had killed thousands of these animals on the island of the state of Tasmania. Uh, initially, these scientists in their study of these animals believed that the deaths were caused by a virus. However, research ultimately uncovered a rare and a fatal cancer. They named it Devil Facial Tumor Disease, or DFTD, uh, is what it's called. And what is strange, according to one of the scientists, Anne-Marie Pierce, is that the abnormalities in the chromosomes of the cancer cells were the same in every tumor. That this means that this disease began in the mouth of one single sick Tasmanian devil. That individual facilitated the spread of this disease by biting its neighbors when squabbling for food. And here they are, kind of hard to see, but they're squabbling for food. This is that's what they do. Uh, according to the scientists, this is natural behavior for the devils, but they jaw wrestle with one another. They bite each other a lot, and usually around the face and the mouth, and bits of the cancerous tumor break off on one devil and stick to the wounds of the other. And so over the course of several years in their studies, the infected devils continued to inflict deadly wounds on others' mouths, and consequently the disease spread, and ultimately it wiped out over 40% of the population of the Tasmanian devil. And uh, I was thinking how appropriate that is, because our mouths are very dangerous, aren't they? Uh, James has already addressed that in chapter 3. But a similar fate threatens us as Christians in a church, and we've seen uh, what the consequences of unwise speech can have. If members persist in devilish uh, speech and behavior, we can wound one another, can't we? And that's why today in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, I've entitled it Perilous Speech. But James is very concerned about this. Remember James' book, the earliest book of the New Testament, probably, I believe, written about 36 A.D., so just a short three years after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Of course, his half-brother, half James, was Jesus' half-brother. And James was a leader of the Jerusalem church, and James is very concerned. He's writing to Jewish believers, believers in Jesus Christ and the Messiah, uh, because the early church of Jerusalem was primarily made up of Jewish people. And they were persecuted. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And they were scattered into the east, typically into the east, is what the historians tell us. They went east to Jerusalem and to Syria and other places east, forming little Jewish believer, messianic communities, if you will. But they were having a lot of problems because they were under a lot of pressure. They were still being persecuted, not only for their Jewishness, but for their Christian beliefs, for following Jesus, the Messiah. And so there was a lot of internal struggle and turmoil. Uh, sometimes uh, persecution will bring people together, but will also divide people if we are under that kind of pressure. Uh, well, James is concerned about that. That last, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4, that last imperative was humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And uh, humility is a prime characteristic. I said two weeks ago that if pride is the first sin, then humility is the first virtue. Humility is the first virtue. 
You know, pride is destructive. It shuts out God's grace. It enters our hearts because we measure ourselves by human standards and not by God's standards. And so that is key when we understand what James is talking about here. And he is telling us that there are some things that we need to focus on and pay attention on. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, we see that there were quarrels going on and conflicts among you, in other words, among the believers. And he is recognizing that there's no secession in conflict unless there's a cessation of critical and condemning speech about others. Uh, you know, I've always wondered, why is it so easy for us to go to the negative, especially when we view others in their lives? James is echoing the teaching, as we see through the book of James, of his half-brother Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus taught, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Strong words there in Matthew chapter 7. Judging is a really the most difficult task. It involves not only other people, but the law itself. What has God commanded us in how to live with others? And so we find this next imperative verb in verse 11. Do not speak against one another. That is the command. Do not speak or use evil speech. It's interesting as you read this in context, uh, James' tone changes somewhat up in verse 8. He calls us, calls believers, sinners and double-minded. He's getting right down and getting right after us. And now he again addresses us as brothers. Do not speak against one another brethren. And that is uh, not gender-specific. It's gender-inclusive. And so it's male and female that he's addressing here. And uh, he's addressing them as brothers, and he's telling us not to slander each other. And that word, the imperative verb that's used here is a compound verb, and it means to speak against, to speak evil of, to defame, to slander someone else. Uh, that comes out of the Bible or the Greek lexicon there. But the link really is with verse 7. Look at verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It is linked to that term, the devil. The devil here is diabolos, which means the slanderer. And the devil is primarily concerned with slandering your character before God. Satan, is, that's what he does. He's a great liar and slanderer. He's the hater of your soul. And it is connected to, with this word here in verse 11, this verb, this imperative verb, that we dare not slander one another because that is the devil's work. That is the devil's work. And that is the work of the devil. And so we are commanded to stop this evil practice. And if we continue to slander each other in the church, we will destroy the fellowship of the Christian community. And you can read volume after volume of churches that have been split and fallen apart, collapsed, and ceased to exist because of evil speech, because of slander speech of one another. And so James is focusing on this, and this imperative verb, and the, the fact is, uh, this word reminds us here uh, that we owe a debt of, of, of fellowship to one another. We owe a debt of love to share our faith in Christ Jesus. And basically, we must not, must not spread rumors. We must, must assume the best, not the worst of others. We must be silent if we cannot be kind. We must not rejoice when fellow believers fall into sin. We must not rejoice when exposing their weaknesses. We must not share things that are better left unsaid. We are not to lie to prove a point. We must not exaggerate the faults of others. We must not tell the truth to injure others. 
if we say we never do this, we are lying to ourselves because it's common to the human condition and it's easy to lapse back into a slanderous verbal speech. William Barclay, a classic commentator, says this. He says that few sins are so thoroughly condemned in the Bible as gossip, slander, and evil speech. In Romans chapter 1, verse 30, Paul classifies slanderers next to the haters of God. Remember that next time you're tempted to gossip, slander, defame somebody else there. Uh, there's not one good word in Scripture about that. Not one. Few things are more enjoyable than a bit of gossip. Is that right? To talk about our neighbors, about the way they do things or don't do things. Few things are so completely condemned in all of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I tell people that uh, when I do any amount of counseling or meeting with people over issues, and they start complaining about their spouse, or they start complaining about other people in the church, I stop them and I say, if you want to confess your sins to me, that's a biblical thing. That is good. But if you want to confess somebody else's sins to me, you're off limits. You cannot do that. And you should be, adopt the same philosophy when you listen to other people, especially the one they're complaining about is not in the same room. Matthew 18 applies this. So it's okay to confess your sins to one another, but not to confess other people's sins to one another. That's the point there. James goes on to give us two reasons why this is wrong. First of all, you break God's law. Secondly, you usurp God's authority. And the rest of the message is based on those two things, those two points that James makes. James delves deeper into the subject here uh, and tells his readers that slandering a brother or sister involves God's law. Leviticus 19.16, of course, remember this Jewish-flavored book in the New Testament, these Jewish readers or listeners to James' sermon would automatically remember what he was talking about. They'd go back to Leviticus 19, 16 through 18. You shall not go about as a slanderer, Leviticus says, among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And that you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, and you may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that is the warning we find in the second part of verse 11, where he says, do not speak against one another brethren. Here's the second part. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And so the caution is, we've had the command, do not speak evil of one another. The caution is, is, do not set aside what is called the royal law. The emphasis on this verse is the word brother. In other words, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, we are from the same womb is what that word means. We are brothers and sisters linked by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers everywhere are linked in that same bond of fellowship together in every local church and in, in the worldwide church throughout the time of the church. And so if we speak evil of our brother or sister behind their backs, we're setting aside the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Look back at chapter 2 of James, verse 8. 
If, however, you are to fill, fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is the royal law. If you've ever wondered what the royal law is in Scripture, loving others. <clears throat> and so uh, we are we are placed ourselves above the lawgiver if we're not careful. We have placed ourselves above the law. You know, uh, it's interesting. I've been to my physician, and I also sat in on some court hearings. Thankfully, I wasn't in the docket. I was just observing down here at the courthouse. And it's interesting to me how both the physician and the judge have similar jobs and yet totally different motives behind it, from my observation. I may be wrong, and those of you in those vocations can correct me later. Uh, but, you know, the judge uh, it needs to be impartial in evaluating the evidence and just in, 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 just in applying the law and passing the sentence. He's got to evaluate that. Whereas the physician, you know, has to analyze, uh, figure out, and, and in a sense evaluate the evidence also, but he's looking for uh, the good of this individual, whereas the judge is looking for the good of the society or community, whatever that may be. The slanderer, by contrast to a court judge, generally neglects to learn all the facts, avoids speaking in the presence of the accused, and sets aside the law of love, and as a self-appointed judge, hands down the verdict. I know we've all done that. We have been there, because we are human, and as James said earlier in chapter 3, who can control the tongue? The slanderer puts aside the law of God and thus places themselves on the same level as God. You know, only God has the authority to determine how his law is going to work out. Uh, we, you know, the person who is a slanderer, who is destroying a church, this bite backbiter, one who gossips behind people's backs, is unaware of the seriousness of what they're doing. This is serious business, and James is making this point. The fact remains, however, that the slander is a sin against the person who is accused and against God who forgets this sin by divine law. Zane Hodges, who writes a commentary on this passage, writes, in flouting this command of, by their criticism of other people, they are in effect criticizing and condemning the royal law itself, love others as yourself. Since all such speech is forbidden by this law, the one who disobeys it is virtually saying, the law is unworthy of my obedience, and I judge it to be invalid for me in this case. Let me illustrate that. Uh, I'm of the philosophy that the speed limit should be set with the flatness of the state. <laughs> like between Ellensburg and Ritzville, it should be 135 miles an hour. Um, and uh, from uh, Billings, Montana to Fargo, North Dakota, it should be about 150 miles an hour. And don't get me started on Iowa. And, uh, but you think about it, Example, you're driving along and you encounter, you're on the freeway, you're making good time, and you encounter all the signs, construction ahead, slow down, and that gives you a speed limit to slow down to, and there's traffic cones, and you're supposed to narrow down to one or two lanes. And you look around and you don't see any construction going on. You say, oh, forget that. I'm going to just keep going 70. You know, because we Christians don't break the speed limit, right? We just keep going 70 instead of what's posted there, the 50 or 45 or whatever. It changes because you've determined that you're above the law and you've determined that 
you can, you're not subject to that particular law. You ignore it, and you blast on through, and you're judging the law and placing yourself above the law. And this is James's point here. The caution is do not set aside the royal law, which is to love others as you love yourself. Christ loves you. There's a command, there's a caution. Thirdly, there's a corrective in verse first part of verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. Look at verse 12 again. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. You know, there is no human being who can fulfill that role perfectly. There is only one lawgiver alone. There is one who can save and destroy, that is, preserve or take away physical life. The reason James says there is only one lawgiver, in theory, we all agree to this, don't we? We look at our scriptures, we look at our Bibles, and if we've been trained in Christian thought, we say, yes, there's only one lawgiver. There's only one who reigns supreme because he has created all things, he is God of all things, he makes the universe, he rules and governs that universe. Uh, his sovereignty is unrivaled, his authority is unquestioned, his will is unchanging, his record is unblemished. His steps are untraceable. His wisdom is unparalleled. His power is unending. His words are unprecedented. His kingdom is unstoppable. If God were not perfectly, perfectly all-powerful, he would cease to be God. There would be one higher than him. Again, Zane Hodges talks about this troubling passage. He's able to save and destroy. This has nothing to do with everlasting life or eternal life. This has to do with physical life here, and that's what James is concerned about. All through this book is about God meeting out a physical punishment if we continue in known sin. There's no reason to read the doctrine of eternal security here, or eternal salvation here. God is certainly the only one who determines everybody's eternal destiny, but this determination is already made. Believers are already free from the final judgment and condemnation. John 3.18, John 5.24, Romans 8.1. But here, a reference to the truth is that the fact that we can be physically taken in death, as James 1.21 and 2.14, 5.15, 5.20 tell us, the idea then will be that uh, the Christian may condemn another believer verbally, but God alone determines whether to save them from sin's penalty of death. Remember, the penalty of sin is death. And for believers in Jesus Christ, some of them are taken earlier than God had originally desired or desired for them because they are in ongoing sin. We see that in the book of Corinthians with those who are abusing the Lord's table. Uh, it says some of you sleep, and that's a, that's a synonym for physical death. God alone determines this. God therefore receives the honor, the final authority in establishing the law and judging man. He is the divine judge. He is the one who made the law, he carries it out, and he cannot allow us to usurp his position in that. So we have a command, we have a caution, we have a corrective, and finally we have a censure at the end of verse 12. And in verse 12, end of verse 12, he asks a rhetorical question. Uh, but who are you to judge your neighbor? It's a rhetorical question. He becomes personal. It's like James looks right into our eyes of us as each individual and says, who are you to judge your neighbor? The contrast between the one and only lawgiver and sinful man is clear. Who are you to judge the servant of another? It's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14, verse 4. And humility comes when we recognize that we are not the judge of others. 
We are not the critic of others. James purposely chose, chooses the word neighbor to remind us of the royal law of love that he is described in chapter 2, verse 8. In judging his neighbor, the reader ought to love him instead of judging him. Uh, so when the Christian submits to God, uh, when we submit to this, when we guard our speech, guard our thoughts, guard our minds, and because there is plenty in my life and in your life that we can criticize, isn't there? We're really honest with one another. If you're around me long enough, you'll find plenty of things to criticize. And uh, probably the same goes with you and me here, you know. And so when we want to submit to God's rules, God's law, God's will in our lives, then Satan is going to attack that. As I said last time, when a Christian submits to God, the satanic forces seek to interfere. Uh, the devil is like a mad dog, Augustine says. He's like a mad dog that is chained up. He is powerless to harm us when we are outside of his circle of reach. But once we enter that circle, we expose ourselves again to injury and harm. James's bottom line is sharp and to the point. Who are you to judge another? If we really repent, if it's real, in James 4, 7 through 10, uh, we must be humble enough to perceive the unworthiness to pass judgment on other Christians. Anything else is only the fruit of arrogant self-exaltation. Maybe some practical considerations here in verse 11. Teach, uh, scripture teaches us that this is the long view. And this haunts me sometimes. Matthew 12, 36 says uh, that we all will appear before God in the day of judgment and at that time give an account for every careless word we have spoken. Can you imagine? I don't know how that works out. But it's the beam of judgment seat, which is our salvation is not being judged, but our works are being judged. Our salvation is secure because of Jesus Christ, because he is the perfect intercessor, advocate, savior. But somehow we give account for every careless word. He holds us responsible for the very words we speak, and especially the words we speak against other people, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 12, all of us are guilty because of sin. We are under the law on the same level as all fellow men, and we are accused. Therefore, instead of placing ourselves above what God's will is and assuming a position of a judge, we ought to encourage and comfort and love our fellow man. You know, sometimes we talk about uh, discernment and we talk about, uh, well, there's a brother in sin over here. Uh, but when we analyze that, are we there just to put him down and crush him or are we there to lift him up and love them as Christ has commanded us? The same thing he did for us at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. In short, we are in no position to judge because we ourselves are in need of mercy and grace. Let us help each other by directing our attention to Jesus Christ. Uh, Ray Orkland, I just ran across this quote. He said, after we mistreat someone, watch what happens inside of ourselves. We go into turbo mode, finding, trying to find more and more faults in that other person. Why do we do that? We are scrambling like crazy to change the subject in our consciousnesses from guilt to our nobility. Our exalted self-image must not suffer loss. That's just the opposite of being humble before Jesus Christ and others. I was thinking about uh, the church, and one of the things is, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said that the second greatest evidence of God's grace is his church. And 
others have described it as the bride of Christ coming down the aisle, all tattered and ripped and with a black eye and beaten up because we're beating up on ourselves. But I also thought about the other thing, and I've seen it over the years, and uh, I call it SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. SIDS. Many babes in Christ fall away from the church and die in their infancy because of the inability to live up to impossible standards which are thrown upon them by more mature believers who often fall short of those standards themselves. You know, new believers are shocked when they find out that there are struggles and problems in churches. Uh, they need to understand that uh, you know, all of us are sinful and fall in, in our humility. We should have the humility uh, to help them and to lift them up. As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I just want you to close with these thoughts. When we stand back and think about these two verses, it should lead us to a simple conclusion. We must be careful and cautious when we speak. Think before you speak, pray before you speak, and pause before you speak. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day of life you've given to us. And Lord, thank you for uh, James and the book of James, as hard as it is sometimes, uh, you unmask us, you make us look into the mirror of your word and see ourselves as we really are. And yet, Lord, we recognize and we cast ourselves upon your grace and your mercy. And thank you, Lord, that you are a great, wonderful God. Lord Jesus, uh, even though I've preached beyond my own obedience this morning, we know, Lord, that you are at work in every human heart. And Lord, this week, may we be conscious of our speech, of our attitudes, not only toward others in this church family, but towards others in our circle of influence, perhaps neighbors, co-workers, classmates, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, that we would not be judgmental, that we would really want you to be lifted up and exalted and glorified in our lives and our expression of who and what you are. Praise you for this day and thank you for life and for your great patience with us. Amen.